0: And here we are folks back in Silly Goose Gang episode 18 and joining us tonight is Professor Jeffrey Meldrum, a Professor of Anatomy and Anthropology at Idaho State University, which I believe would make you, if my college football knowledge is okay, a Bengal, Idaho that's
1: State right. Bengals. Yeah, that's right. No, that's not bad. See, I know my college football and call sure it American just got to be in the high desert of Rocky Mountain. I guess yeah, I at some point we had a sister city in uh, india or something and that was where the bengal tiger came into being so yeah that, curious bit of history
0: <laughs> yeah definitely definitely i was a, a little bit of a sports fan and follow american football uh, american football as i call it football as you would call it uh,
1: right.
0: so i follow it pretty closely so yeah idaho state bengals but thank you for uh, for joining us on this episode we really appreciate you taking the time to
1: jump on and have a chat with us my my pleasure always willing to chat about this topic
2: <clears throat> yeah absolutely i always think it's um one of the things that I, I find amazing uh just from doing this is is when some you know time is so precious so when anybody gives you any time just to be extremely thankful that somebody wants to talk it's um it's really cool so thank okay. you um so yeah where, where, where do we begin jeff and where do we begin um <laughs> this is this is one of these this is one of you know your specialist areas one of these um it's one of these topics that is uh, fascinating to to a lot of people around the world you know the folklore and right. um, so i have uh, been listening to a few podcasts and a few youtube videos that you've done over uh-huh. the last few days so just for the sake of listeners do you you know just give us a little brief um introduction to yourself and your, your background
1: sure sure well i uh i grew up in the in the pacific and in intermountain west here of north america and and uh, so as a youngster uh it was just there was an, an interesting convergence of the stars almost it seemed that uh, i was about oh 11 years old when roger patterson who shot that very famous piece of film footage in, in Northern California um, came through Spokane, Washington, where I was living, and uh, that was one of one of the first, one of the earliest uh, public showings of the documentary showcasing that that piece of footage. And so, you know, I was a as a youngster was always fascinated with nature. I was, you know, had had my insect collection. I had my menagerie of little critters in various. Aquarium tanks and and screen boxes and so forth. uh, Always bringing snakes home and smuggling them into my bedroom and things like that. And so um, uh, and I was fascinated too with uh, with with human prehistory. I was the the notion of cavemen and human evolution had had piqued my curiosity and uh, and so uh, this this film uh, seemed to embody all of those interests in one one very. uh, interesting, intriguing package. And so I was uh, fascinated by it. And, uh, uh, one thing led to another and, um, uh, did, did research, you know, read Patterson's book, uh, found out about John Green by coincidence, John Green, uh, a Canadian journalist who had written another very informative book at that time. Um, his niece was my librarian at school, <laughs> at oh, okay. grade school. And, uh, and so I uh, was introduced to his writings and, and, um, uh, you know, just, uh, it, 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 continually fascinated me. I mean, just, just the, the fundamental aspect of the mystery of some unknown, um, uh, creature entity, you know, animal occupying or ha- inhabiting the, the woods uh, that I frequented. And so, um, as, Time went on and, and many, well, maybe your listeners haven't heard this. I was going to say, this is a question I, I frequently answer. And so I hate to be redundant, but I but it may be some, some new listeners. But uh, as time went on, I, I ended up uh, eventually, uh, as, as the career uh, sort of roulette wheel spun, there were a limited number of selections on that wheel. But I, I ended up going uh, to the university and, and studying um, uh, physical anthropology anatomical sciences, actually, with an emphasis in, in physical anthropology. That was constrained somewhat by the economy at that time. And there's always cycles of hiring and and, uh, and uh, saturation of, of various disciplines. And as it turned out, uh, you know, anthropology was quite uh, filled to the max. They, uh, there were no more positions, really. So I was strongly encouraged, though, to go to... Uh, uh, go into anatomical sciences given my interest in locomotion which was in part uh, you know uh, spawned by fascination with bigfoot tracks with footprints and with the mechanisms of bipedalism that distinguished sasquatch from humans and how we came to walk on on two legs and did this creature share that legacy directly with us or was it a convergence of uh, selection pressures for the habit of walking on two legs. And, and so all those things kind of it were this synergistic snowball. And I ended up, eventually ended up back in, uh, in the Intermountain West here in Pocatello. And uh, some opportunities just sort of dropped in my lap as a result of that, uh, that involved me in the analysis of some um, video footage that was shot down in Northern California. Uh, And, um, and also some uh, footprints. I came up, brought up face to face with a long line of 15 inch tracks in southeastern Washington state. Um, And uh, I tell you, when you actually witness tracks, and, and there's a whole spectrum, people need to realize this. It isn't, there are tracks or there are not tracks. There's a whole spectrum of the expression of quality. Uh, and information in footprints, given the age, given the substrate, given the circumstances. This was an exceptional example where very loamy, silty soil uh, of uh, southeastern Washington and wet conditions and a farm access road that was, you know, unimproved, just a dirt track, basically. So these tracks were pristine. They were they were definitely Less than eight hours old, and uh, I mean, I, I knelt down and could actually see skin ridge detail, the fingerprint patterns in the, in the uh, or, or on the sole, uh, transferred from the sole to the footprint that were still there um, in, uh, uh, with some expression. Uh, it didn't last long, unfortunately, due to the rainy, wet conditions. But uh, uh, I mean, this was you know 35, 45 clear footprints in succession. There, there was no room for ambiguity it either was hoaxed or it was the real deal and uh you know i i, I pride myself in to, at least to the extent that i can pretty much tell the difference uh, or at least uh, uh, weigh in the balance the the probability of, of one or the other of those two options and uh, the details the animation the tension cracks the pressure ridges the dragons and drag outs you know the The skin ridge detail, the the action of the toes, the splayed position in in, in one particular step in the appropriate circumstances and where it was running or sliding, the flexion of the toes curling in tightly and and leaving very deep impressions uh, in contrast. I mean, there was just no way. There was just no way that that Paul Freeman, who had taken me out, this witness, uh, could have fabricated or anyone else for that matter, as far as I was concerned. And uh, so I, I was in the company of my, my brother. We had gone up uh, to make a, a visit uh, on Dr. Grover Grants by chance uh, at uh, Pullman, Washington. We're on our way back and stopped in and made this un- unannounced visit to this uh, individual and uh, uh, gained his confidence. And he then confided that he had actually just found some tracks that very morning before we'd arrived. and I was incredulous, you know, like, what? <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, you wanna see them? I, said, Well, sure, and so we went up into the foothills and boom, there they were. And I was pinching myself, you know, I was like, how can this be, <laughs> you know, this just can't. And, uh, but it was quickly evident that uh, for, for all his skill, as an outdoorsman, I mean, he didn't understand the functional morphology of the foot, I and mean, you can you can be a tracker. That's the distinction, the important distinction. You can be a tracker and not understand what's going on underneath the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I could see those cues, those uh, indications of of the articulation of the flexibility of the expansion of the sole pad, you know, the flexion of the toes, the number of joints that are in, uh, indicated in the toes and so on. And, and, uh, you know, it was just kind of going over his head. He clearly had that glazed eyed look that my students sometimes get when I get a little, <laughs> moving a little too fast. For them. And, uh, uh, so if he didn't do it, you know, I can't imagine anyone else uh, going to the trouble under those weather conditions, because, you know, chances are the could have stormed up, uh, uh, quite seriously and washed them out and all your effort would have been for naught. but yeah. as it was we um... <clears throat> so that's a very long answer to how how it got started but I, I mean we my brother and I uh, we hustled around and found a hardware store and got some plaster and and uh, you know did a lot of photography and examination and you know some cutting some sign to see exactly what had happened that was the other thing that was so impressive is Paul had kind of kind of uh, surmised what he thought had happened, that it had come along here and made this little hairpin turn down in the, in the, uh, in the, the field and then, and then came up and disappeared going the other direction. Well, we, uh, it just didn't make sense based on what was there. And I thought, you know, if he's right at all, there's gotta be, you know, then there should be more sign off in this particular direction. We couldn't find anything. And I thought, well, maybe he's got it differently. And We, we started uh, marking out each individual footprint, just really assessing what was going on, found the flexion point where it had done the hairpin turn on the opposite end of, of the seam and had then bolted back for cover uh, along this big irrigation ditch where there was all sorts of brush and brambles there um, and found tracks far beyond any sign of his activity. So he'd read the sign, he read the sign 180 degrees backwards, you know, so if he was, if he was responsible, why would he portray it that way to me, you know? Uh, and so anyway, we, we made some plaster casts and did a lot of photography, and examined it carefully. And, and uh, boy, I tell you that drive home, it was about a five hour drive back to Boise <coughs> and from and It was, you know, we were, I mean, the implications. Were, were, were sinking in, you know, my gosh, they really do exist, because I had, even though I had this youthful enthusiasm from back in my grade school days, that interest, you know, had waxed and waned, and of course nothing, no major breakthroughs, just the same old, same old, and, uh, you know, Dr. Crantz had done some work, but there were no, you know, the biggest breakthrough was the, actually his papers, I think, the papers on the Dramatoglyphics uh, that were found in, uh, also in this area of Walla Walla but no breakthroughs nothing uh, nothing significant and uh, you know so my skepticism was was pretty keen but i but we did this kind of on a lark i you know i, I had been invited to evaluate this piece of video footage and i thought ah you know this will be just a fun exercise i mean kind of nostalgic a fun exercise to revisit the the, uh, the topic but, but you know easily point out the zipper and yeah uh, and demonstrate my anatomical acumen <laughs> doing so do and the more i scrutinized and stared at this and considered it and looked at it and the impact of it and so forth the i couldn't find a zipper and in fact i started picking out details of anatomy uh i mean there that were not to be expected in an off-the-shelf costume yeah and, um, and so uh so it was uh it was quite uh, you know, at that time, I was very keenly aware of the abuse that Dr. Prance had suffered at the hands of his colleagues and the scientific establishment, as he called it. And, uh, and uh, you know, there was uh, I've often said there was like there was a little imp on the shoulder whispering in my ear, do you really want to do this? Mm. <laughs> Are you sure you want to go down this road? And the other one says, how can you not? what an interesting, I mean, what, what a fascinating scientific question. And here you see e- evidence that, that really is compelling. I mean, everyone should be convinced. Uh, well, yeah. that's obviously not the case, but, um, but that's kind of what set me down the road. And so now, you know, that was 96, what is it? 20 some years later and 300 plus footprint casts in my lab later, it's, uh, and I think there have been some breakthroughs. There have been some insights um, that have built upon, you know, what Dr. Krantz did, but uh, clearly have, have uh, uh, extended our understanding of the model of the form and function of the Sasquatch foot, as as revealed in the footprint data set. But I think we're on right on the verge of <clears throat> getting some DNA evidence eventually, and hopefully that will tip the scales. If not, Conclusively demonstrate the presence of a novel, unknown species. <laughs> Sorry to ramble. That's uh, no, no, no. That's that's. that's
2: I that. Yeah. So there's a few, a, a few, like quite a few pieces in there, um, Jeff. So these footprints, in terms of location, how hmm. you know are they a long way from a town, or village, or quite close? You know, in terms of proximity to to civilization, essentially.
1: Right. Well, obviously, it takes. Two, two elements to have a footprint found reported. And that's there has to be a, a track maker and then someone who discovers it. So, obviously, the tracks found in remote spots are, are more infrequently found or, or reported, rather, mm. yeah. because they're infrequently found by human witnesses. In this case, in, in this particular example, <clears throat> we didn't have to go very far up in the foothills. And this was February. The snow was just melting back. And so, our winter snow's just melting back and and what this witness would do is as the lower roads became accessible and in this area it's starting to change now but at that time pardon me but but at that time many of the roads they were you know were tertiary roads they weren't even gravel roads they were dirt roads just bladed with a with a bulldozer you know and uh or greater and uh, so when they were wet or when they're very dry and powdery, they take tracks extremely clearly. And, uh, and, and there's, you know, so there's a lot of, I mean, yeah, any animal that's crossing from one side to the other leaves signs. Leaves so um, what he would do is as soon as some of these lower foothill roads right adjacent to or just up into the national forest were accessible, he'd start driving these and just look for any place that an animal that a Sasquatch had crossed the road or had walked along the shoulder of the road. And these were reportedly the first tracks that he had found at that particular season. And uh, so they were, you know, right on the border of the national forest. And they, you know, in that part of Washington, they cultivate right up to that boundary. Some of the foothills there, you know, they use these big D9, you know, diesel caterpillars to pull their their, uh, uh, plows and discs and so forth. So they cultivate on some pretty steep, uh, uneven uh, terrain. Plus the, um, the, 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 the little valleys and glens oftentimes are, uh, or, or steep slopes thereof are uh, not cultivated, but they had uh, old pioneer orchards of plums and apples.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so many of these had been abandoned and the, the plums are just growing wild and they hold their fruit up, uh, can hold their fruit for quite some time, uh, sometimes without dropping them. Uh, or even if they do, you know, they, they just freeze underneath the trees and come spring, uh, they, they melt out and start to thaw. And, uh, they do get a little ripe sometimes, a little, I mean, a little uh, fermented, but uh, uh, there's actually some funny stories. There was one incident found where it, it seemed from the sign that the Sasquatch had gleaned a bunch of this uh uh bought out plums and then got sick and the tracks led to there was an old what they call the coyote school it's an old abandoned building that the roof has collapsed on but the sub basement still you know it actually makes kind of a shelter sometimes animals do nest in there wild animals but the tracks led into that area and it had literally vomited because there was this pile of vomit that was just full of plum pits. And, and that's what we suspected happened is that it had just eaten too many of these fermented plums <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately couldn't keep them down. And out came the whole mess with all the plum pits. So they just had eaten them, pit and all, stoned yeah. them. So um, the, the, the thought is that perhaps in the spring, when the snows are melting back, and you have what, that green zone, mm starts to green up and the forbs and herbs and whatnot are growing and the young shoots are coming up um that the sasquatch like so many other animals omnivores or or, or herbivores uh are taking advantage of that that terrain and so their footprints are are discovered in that area fairly close to some ranch buildings and so forth then you occasionally get stories a lot of times the ranchers or the farmers don't talk about it. They don't want um, uh, a cavalcade okay. of people marching across their spring wheat planting, yeah. <laughs> looking so, for footprints.
2: So this this is this is um, this is what I meant in terms of you know the location, Jeff. Is it you know these some of these farmers? You know they don't want cameras and film crews. They don't want a hassle. They just want to you know farm and get on with life. So you know it sounds sounds it's kind of in that. Um, an area where it's uh, you know the guys don't want anybody around there, and it's not near not near a big city. So if somebody wanted to hoax it, yeah. they would have to travel and climb, and really they would have to
1: really want to to, yeah. to do that. Um, yeah, and it happens. I mean, it happens. There, yeah, yeah, yeah There yeah. are. I mean, there are examples that are obviously example. I mean, as I said, you know, we were talking about that spectrum of quality. Well, um, there, so there's a lot of gray area sort of, of, of ambiguity where people think they may have found a footprint when in reality it's probably just a pothole or a puddle or something like that mm-hmm. uh, or another the track of another animal misidentified like a bear with its toes or uh, even sometimes in the winter time bounding animals like deer will leave a succession of punch marks in in say three foot plus snow banks or snow uh, cover and uh and that melts out a little bit. And, it, and from an angle, if you're not looking down into the hole to see the individual uh, hoof prints, <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if there's that much detail, uh, from, from an angle, it looks like a remarkably, sometimes even alternating series of steps. But amongst that mix, there are some examples where people have clearly uh, tried to plant evidence. And it happens. But it's extremely, I think, extremely rare. Uh, there, those are the exceptions rather than the rule. When I look through the tracks that I have, the vast majority are either, I think, the real deal or misidentification. Uh, and, and then, the like I said, the occasional in, overinterpreting. We, we've had a rash of, of human footprints, too, that have been reported. And, and the, the justification is offered that, that they're, like you point out, found in very remote isolated areas where it would be hard to imagine anyone tromping around barefoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they show all the hallmarks of the human footprint from the longitudinal arch, the well-developed ball. You know, first of, first of all, they're not very big. You know, they're, they're in the human size range. So on average, about uh, oh, 09 10 inches. Um, they have a well differentiated big toe from the smaller toe pads with a very steep angle of the lateral. Fifth toe is often bent in from shoe wear to where it's almost lying on its side. Very narrow heel. One of the things that that differentiates Sasquatch because you know as as anyone remember back to their college physics that volume increases to the cube of linear dimensions, and so uh, whereas surface area only increases to the square. So body mass is getting disproportionately big relative to the increase in size of the surface area of the sole of the foot which has to distribute that weight and so there are only so many ways that a big primate a big hominoid can solve that challenge one is to not have an arch which focuses weight on the ball and the heel so it greatly increases the plantar pressures under those points of the foot and 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 we have modified them accordingly so we've got a big thick heel pad and we've differentiated ball under the joint at the base of our big toe so if we don't do that we keep the foot flattened out and thicken out the the sole pad and more than anything widen the foot make the heel and the forefoot wider uh, then that distributes the weight over a a greater surface area and Krantz did some really elegant calculations actually trying to show how with those kind of things combined with other behavioral differences like Sasquatch are described as walking with a very compliant gait, we call it. That means that the joints of the leg are flexed so that some of that force of impact can be taken up by the ligaments and tendons spanning the joints of the, of the foot, the ankle, the knee, and the hip. And uh, by doing that, and, and scientific experiments have been done, uh, you know, where even where that behavior is even utilized by humans in certain athletic endeavors, uh, you can reduce the impact forces, what we call the ground reaction forces, by as much as 18, 20%. So you combine that with the increased breadth, with the increased surface area due to the flat, flexible foot, and uh, the Sasquatch uh, actually has to tolerate poundage per square inch on par with that that humans experience, which, you know, is if you're running or jumping or whatever is probably yeah. you know, close to the limits of tolerance for those tissues, for those uh, soft tissues and hard tissues of the foot. and mm-hmm.
0: oh, Interesting. Going on going on that point, I did um, certainly not to the level you did, Jeff, but I did um, sports sciences at university. Yes, so I know. did uh, biomechanics and the gait analysis of That's sprinting. Right. So some of what you're talking about is casting my mind back to 20 years ago when I was sat in the lecture theatre. Listening to to outstanding professors like yourself. So just if I understand it, would that then be the case that like would the Sasquatch not be able to like like dorsiflex? Would it be almost like a, a very flat foot like a, just to take it to the extreme like an elephant or something along those lines where it's a very flat, thick pad? Whereas a human can obviously dorsiflex, run on the ball, right, create that ground reaction force to increase its speed. Would the Sasquatch then not be able to do that? Is that Kind of the big but
1: difference or they're, they're not obviously not as extreme as as these very gravy portal animals we call them that like the elephant where where the limbs are are as you point out rather extended uh, so even when a elephant runs and gets a little momentum going it's a pretty uh extended stiff legged they keep the the limbs uh straight to avoid bending stresses so i mean sasquatch may especially the big ones i mean i i don't think that they're as big as some people uh, suggest. I mean, this notion of uh, what, what have been called true giants that are 12 and 14 feet tall just is, I mean, there's no evidence to back that up. The, big, the largest credible footprint I have ever witnessed is 19 inches. And that would equate to, you know, nine to 10 feet in height probably. But the average, the average foot length uh, without any regard for gender differences which may impact body mass and you know, robusticity of the skeleton and so forth, is about 16 and a half inches. So that would equate to about, uh, you know uh, at the very most, about eight, eight and a half feet tall, and hmm. probably weigh about 1200, 1200, 1300 pounds. I mean, you know, so they're, uh, when you look at other animals, like polar bears, they're, they're pushing that, or large brown bears are getting close to that. Moose and so forth. Uh, they're not constrained by the extreme adaptations that are necessary, like in an elephant. But, so uh, it, with that flat, uh, going back to that notion, the flat foot, it appears that the Sasquatch foot has retained a primitive condition that we find in other great apes to varying degrees. And that is in the absence of the development of that longitudinal arch, the joints of the instep, which in humans twist into a more stable uh, rigid position so that we can use the foot as a lever to have that forward impulse you know and use the plantar flexors of the calf muscles to really create force um, they have retained a much greater range of motion through the midfoot which is a primitive adaptation that was first that first uh, uh was selected for by grasp climbing adaptations with, you know, with the presence of a divergent big toe. And so see some of my critics have argued, well then if you have a non-divergent big toe, why would you have a flexible foot? doesn't make any sense. It make more sense to have an arch. Well, there are other selection pressures for having an arch besides um, uh, those that, that uh, eliminate the non-divergent uh, or eliminate a divergent big toe. Um, and so there are advantages to the Sasquatch foot to retain that degree of flexibility. And we see that in one, by not having an arch, well, by not having a big toe, you don't need the big toe. And, and uh, because you're, if you're 1200, 1300 pounds, you don't want to be climbing up into a tree. A 10 foot fall could be, you know, mortal. Uh, it could be uh, lethal rather. Um, and uh, so not, if you don't need it for grasping, there's advantages not to have this appendage jutting out at an angle where it's going to get caught on things when you walk around. So, um, so I, I think that very early in their evolution, they had lost the divergence of the big toe. We actually see a trend if you look at, uh, say, gibbons, chimpanzees, uh, chimps, and orang, uh, not orangs, uh, keep orangs. Orangs have solved that problem by just eliminating the toe altogether. So they have a little nubbin down here. Oftentimes it has no nail, and they just use that hind foot as a hook. Uh, so they've gone in an extreme direction. But if you go to uh, you know, terminate with mountain gorillas, which are more, most terrestrial of all the great apes, they have a reduction in the di- uh, divergence of the big toe. Much more robust big toe that, that uh, often is held more in a line with the other digits. Not, not so- entirely. So one thing, one thing that's
2: um, quite interesting is so, if you know, let's let's, let's assume that this thing is one hundred percent real. Is would there be a case then, uh, you know, for the for the Sasquatch to be slowly evolving as a human? So you know, maybe from what it was going back to, you know, like a, a giant Gigantopithecus right. kind of animal to now, would there be a case for that? Evolving, slowly evolving, you know, from from the stories, from you know, because every every culture from the Himalayas to you know everywhere has um, these stories of yay Sasquatch, Bigfoot. Would there be a case then for an evolution of Sasquatch?
1: Well, first let's let's take those that sort of pan uh, global uh, distribution of, of wild and the uh, notion of wild, and many people when when they reflect on that think these must all be manifestations of the same thing. Well, one of the things that we've, we've been learning here in the past 20 years or more is that uh, hominin and hominoids. So if we use hominoids in in the taxonomic sense, not in the colloquial sense of of human-like or man-like, but rather members of the superfamily hominoidia, which includes us and the apes. So if we look at all those hominoids uh, and their evolution, we're witnessing just a, a, a small fraction of the taxonomic diversity that has existed over the last oh, 10, mm. 10, 12 million years, excuse me. And it's, and even our own lineage, instead of being a single file march from them to us, if you will, uh, we're one terminal branch of an extremely bushy family tree, even mm. excluding the great eight. We include the great apes. I mean, it trebles the known species uh, within the, the superfamily hominoid. And what we're finding, too, is that many of these very diverse branches have persisted alongside us until very, very recently. You know, the hobbit, Homo floresiensis, yeah, yeah. Uh, really brought that home because what a ringer that was. Here was something that, at first, to fit, to, to shoehorn it in, to a, to a preconception of a cubbyhole for it, it was thought that it must have been a dwarfed Homo erectus, even though it had a brain the size of a chimpanzee, and it had no cranial features that allied it with Homo erectus at all. And I was asked to review the paper and looked at the, particularly at the post skeleton, and it looked like an australopithecine or an early Homo, like Homo habilis, which essentially just is a... Australopithecine with a slightly bigger brain. Um, Not much by way of uh, major innovation like we see when we get to Homo erectus or Homo orgaster. And I said, This isn't, this has nothing to do with Homo erectus. In fact, it shouldn't even be called Homo floresiensis because, I mean, it hasn't crossed that, what has been called historically the cerebral rubricon, where it was thought you had to have at least this big of a brain before we're going to call you Homo. And, and the, the tools, the artifacts that were alleged and, and the, con- quote, controlled fire, evidence of controlled fire, was an extremely thin argument. Couldn't really be justified. So you've got a little hairy hominin that's three and a half feet tall, that has a brain the size of a chimpanzee, that at best is using little flake tools that now we know australopithecines were also using. Uh, the fire was probably just opportunistic, if at all. But it's only... 50,000 years old. And those are characteristics mm-hmm. of hominins that are supposed to be two to three million years old. So yeah. what happened here, you know? So this should have really, it should have really rocked the boat. And it did kind of, I mean, it should have, it should have shaken um, the, uh, the mindset into, to make people a little more open-minded about the prospects of things like the Yeti. Yeah. And it did some. Henry Gee wrote a, a, an op-ed for Nature magazine, uh, the journal Nature in which he basically said, hmm, maybe this should give us some pause and there might be a kernel of truth. I mean, because the people in Flores and other parts of Indonesia have been describing little hairy people that live up in the mountains for for, for generations, but they've always been just dismissed as (coughs) Mm, hope. Now all of a sudden, you know. So you've got Homo floresiensis, you've got Homo erectus in Southeast Asia, maybe as young as 25,000 years. You've got Homo heidelbergensis outside of Beijing that's probably as young as 20,000 years. You've got uh, Neanderthals that possibly between 10 and 20,000 years. And so, I mean, it's just uh, 10, 20,000 years is the wink of the eye in in Mm. terms of the fossil record and dates of last, uh, most recent appearance or the latest appearance. That's nothing. So Why? Why would we think that it's that, that, that there couldn't be, as I like to call them, relic hominoids? So not all the same, uh, a lot of diversity. And uh, and 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 there is a context for this. Not your question about evolving. You always have to be careful about in, in terms of, you know, with 2020 hindsight, it appears that nature has this, this goal in mind, you know, that we're the we're the result. We're the acme of, of evolution, but nature is absolutely blind as far as the future. It has no no uh, uh, orientation to what's on the horizon or what's coming up. A really good example was uh, a, a fun sort of straw man was was uh, uh, proposed by Dale Russell, who was a Canadian paleontologist, and he he took the fact that There were these bipedal dinosaurs back in the Cretaceous, these uh, dromosaurs that were, uh, you know, like like the uh, velociraptors of Jurassic Park that had remarkably big brains for a dinosaur. They had brain to body ratios that were on par with some primitive mammals. Um, And his thought was, well, as brainy as these things are, what if they hadn't gone extinct? At the Cretaceous-Tertiary boundary, what if they had survived? Would their trajectory that they were on have resulted in a sentient dinosaur, a dinosauroid? And he created this this imaginary upright-standing, bipedal, tailless, flat-faced, you know, big-eyed uh, reptilian uh, creature with a bulbous head to, to in case. And and then it, it, you know, it it became. became, Well, well, it was. It was fascinating. fascinating, That
2: hurts my head.
1: (laughs) It's a fascinating uh, 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 thought exercise. You know, what would be the selection pressures? I often use this and show my students, and you know, in human anatomy, what would be the, or in evolution, better, because we're talking about natural selection. What would be the selection pressures that would shape this dinosaur? You know, which is cantilevered, pronograde forward, has this big tail to balance the rest of the body, head and neck over two limbs, has these short, three-toed fingers with long claws, has a, ma- a long snout with a mouth full of teeth. You know, what would be the selection pressure for our broad, flattened chest with our shoulder blades on the back? Well, the only selection, you know, the reason we look like that is the same reason chimpanzees look like that, for hanging under branches with our arm elevated up above the shoulder joint and, and suspending with tension on those structures. So did this dinosaur go through an arboreal phase to reshape it you know, in, in this thought model? So it kind of goes back to Gigantopithecus. What, what would be the motivation? What would be the selection pressure? And would, would it have happened that this bipedal creature Uh, I mean, does freeing the hands automatically select for tool use? Does tool use automatically select for increased brain size? This has been something debated for 200 years in in anthropology. You know, Mm -hmm. which came first, chicken or the egg? You know, which came first, big brains or (laughs) bipedalism? And and it becomes kind of a a, a tautology in a way. Uh, And you just have to uh, acknowledge that there's a certain degree of serendipity in the way in which lineages evolve. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, I mean, I, I think it's uh, that there isn't evidence to suggest or should I say the simpler explanation for what evidence we have for Sasquatch. anyway. Now we would talk about Sasquatch, that, that it is a bipedal ape, that it has its massive body size, its lack of evidence of tool use, um, of you know, lack of fire control, uh, controlled fire of, of uh, uh, You know of complex language, etc. All those things suggest that it just muscles its way through now having said that there are other branches on this bushy tree and some of them may be a little more closely allied to our recent past our recent ancestors for example in Russia the quote Bigfoot equivalent is called the almas, but it's not equivalent its description is, and behaviors, more important than behaviors, are quite different. It's often described as being only about five and a half to six feet tall, covered with hair, but with differentiated head hair often. Um, it, it, it is attributed with using um, uh, stone tools. Uh, an, a British archaeologist doing her doctoral work over <clears throat> in uh, the borderlands there by Mongolia um, was collecting these Mousterian points, which are attributed to Neanderthals. She shows them to the local people, and they go, "Oh, yeah, the Almas make those. Why are you interested in those? <laughs> oh, who are the Almas? Oh, they're these backwards hillbillies. You know, they're kind of strange. They they try to talk to us, but they really can't. They're covered with hair. They you know oftentimes don't wear clothing. They but, but we trade with them sometimes. They that the report they reportedly will leave out. Produce from the garden, and the Almas will leave, you know, venison and rabbits and things in return. So, which is an interesting uh, kind of reciprocation. And it suggests, maybe, you know, as it is also suggested by the coincidence of occurrence, <laughs> these <laughs> Almas reports come from areas where we do have remains of Neanderthals. It was part of the Neanderthal range. In fact, the Neanderthals probably ranged even further uh, from. Out of Europe into Western Asia than, than we currently understand. We're now learning a little bit about the Denisovans, which is another close relative, yeah, of, yeah. You know, yeah. and they may have extended all the way to the eastern seashore and down into you know New Guinea, into the islands of uh, of Indonesia, and so forth. So, so anyway, the point is that the, the, the fruit basket has apples and oranges and even a banana maybe in there. There's there's a a spectrum of diversity. It's interesting because in 1960, Ivan Sanderson wrote one of the, I think, one of the the most uh, interesting authoritative treatments of this topic. And uh, at that time, this is before the age of the Internet and the dispersal. This is all information that he gleaned through correspondence and through travel and, and rifling through documents and histories and so forth. To gather all these anecdotes and all this this material he concluded that there were at least four types uh one was the the giant type which he had just become familiar with which was the sasquatch then there was the almas uh when and, and many different names he, he had a uh, quite an exhaustive list of, of native names for these creatures but was he referred to it as a neanderthaloid and then there mm-hmm. was a much more ape-like form in the Himalayas that he felt you know it was at the the root of the Yeti and then the little people not only of Southeast Asia but he even has a, a few other uh pygmy forms uh in South America for example the uh, uh Duendi uh, and Siddhartha and so forth uh um and in Africa he also there was one in Africa as well the Olgogwe I think is the term, one of the terms. Uh, there's a fascinating book just written by Garrett Patterson. I'll give him a plug. I just reviewed his book, and there's a, a review published in the, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, the journal that I edit. But Garrett Patterson, Garrett with a T-H. Um, he has written numerous books on natural history, His most known for his conservation work, trying to uh, gain better protection for elephants and lions in Africa he was researching a very cryptic um, uh, uh, population of elephants down in South Africa in down southeastern uh, the coastal mountains of South Africa where there are still remnant forests and, and uh, shrublands and uh, but in addition to to describing these very um, ghost elephants, uh, rare almost to the point of being mythological themselves, he had first hand encounters, three first hand encounters, and collected stories of the Otang, it was called. Otang, which, based on its description, is uh, you know, some relic, Australopithecine, by all accounts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Australopithecine or early Homo, possibly Homo nilati, for example. We have, uh, you know, this, this odd discovery uh, of, a, of a hominin species that had a sort of a mosaic of primitive and derived characteristics. But for the most part, you know, it look, looked like a, 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 an Australopithecine in many respects. It's given the term Homo nilati, but, uh, but it's, you know, right there on that cusp. Uh, you know, expecting, showing characteristics that you would, you would associate with uh, uh, australopithecines from two to three million years ago. And when the dates came back, it was just a couple hundred thousand years. It overlapped the appearance of modern homo sapiens. So, man, I mean, if that doesn't make you wonder about recent uh, eyewitness accounts by sober experience professional conservationists and naturalists of of a upright walking bipedal you know hominoid hominin uh possibly existing then i don't know what what does but <laughs>
2: there's yeah. um, there, there's there is so many things here jeff <laughs> that, uh, I would love to pull you back on, but I've already forgotten half of them. So <laughs> yeah. at, at, at some point, I will have to re-listen to this, and we will have to speak <laughs> to you again at some point. There's so many like, things here that I would love to, to, to branch you out into.
1: And even um, stop sign like a crossing guard. We'll, we'll, we'll,
0: we'll go back. I suppose it makes sense. So if you're talking about them coming, you know, down that eastern. Cape of Africa between, you know, the cradle of civilization. You think about the fact that in the waters off after the Cassilianth the was discovered, you know, millions of years after it was supposed to have been extinct. Right. That whole neck of the woods, there must be, it makes sense. And as you say, if, if that doesn't get you at least going, hmm, then, yeah. then you're closing off. And I think that's the, <laughs> I think that's, you know, when you grow up, you think, well, science looks for facts and information. And it's only as you get a little bit older that you realise that sometimes within science and then with any, you know, field, yeah. people find their niches of, you know, this is my area and if it doesn't quite fit in there, it does. And you, you must experience that, obviously, with, with the research that you're into. But if you're talking about from a, you know, a, a pure science basis, you can't immediately just discount something just because you don't think it exists. Right. Like, I've never seen, I've never seen, I'm trying to think, you know, if I hadn't been to a zoo, for example, I would never have seen, or we didn't have televisions, I wouldn't have seen zebras, I wouldn't have seen any of the great apes that you're talking about. Does that mean they don't exist? You know, if you're taking it to that extreme level. Exactly, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's all too easy to sit, you know, comfortably in your armchair and uh, pontificate about what is and isn't real uh, and discount the eyewitnesses who have seen something and we're not just talking a flash of fur or a bump in the night i mean i i have talked to so many people some who i've come to be very uh good friends with closely acquainted with i know their character and uh you know they they really saw something and it uh, you know i've been through all the things with uh the, uh, and, and certainly uh, acknowledge some of the uh, caveats that go with eyewitness testimony. And uh, I was on, I was doing a radio show one time, and uh, uh, the uh, caller asked me if I was familiar with uh, Elizabeth Loftus and her work. She's a psychologist who uh, has gained some notoriety because of her, um, uh, her uh, uh, research that suggests that eyewitness testimony is unreliable, you know, especially when talking about uh, in uh, in the legal sense, legal uh, litigations and, and so on. And uh, I answered, yes, I was familiar. Obviously, was familiar with with her work. And I said, I don't, I don't uh, really see quite. I mean, I see some applications, but I not whole cloth. And he goes, Well, you. If, if you're familiar with her work, then and you acknowledge that you have to discount all eyewitness testimony as just unreliable. It's it's not good data. I said, well, it's a little different, <clears throat> you know, when the little old lady is standing in front of the lineup of of uh, of, of uh, suspects uh, of a purse snatching, and she has to try to pick out which one's the guy who, of all these similar-looking people, is the one in particular that or burst, versus say an experienced outdoorsman who had seen something under good conditions of observation and here lined up before him is a moose a deer a wolf a bear a bigfoot and a hiker you know i said it's kind of apples and oranges they're not the same and in fact it's interesting that in in, in the past uh, couple decades there have been there's been a bit of a backlash and a pushback by researchers that have Actually demonstrated the remarkable reliability of eyewitness to re- uh, recollect details. I mean, it, you have to yeah. you have to look at the circumstances and the application. But anyway, my but he just got more and more frustrated as as we kind of uh, discussed this, and finally, in, in exasperation, he says to me, "If there was an eight hundred pound gorilla out there in the woods, people would be seeing it." And I said, "Well, that's kind of where this conversation started, isn't it?" But people are seeing it. But you're mm-hmm. you're a priori discounting their mm-hmm. testimony based on your <laughs> assumption that it's unreliable. You know, you can't yeah, wait, have it to... <laughs> Wait,
2: wait, wait to, wait to trip yourself up, huh? <laughs> but anyway, um, so one one of the things that's quite interesting is um, so you know uh, you know I do quite a lot of hiking and, and these kind of things. And if you know, even in Scotland, where we don't have, you know, it's not a huge country, we don't have great areas of woods and hills. I've been in, you know, wooded areas that are, you know, maybe ten acres. It's not big, but the wood it, it gets so dense and dark. Yeah. You you sometimes just walking through there, and you kind of going,
1: hmm,
2: yeah, this is quite, you know, it's so dense. You think anything, anything could be in here. So if you take that and multiply it by Thousands of millions of times, in you know, like you know, the northwest that you're saying, where the, the woods are enormous, you think, right. there really could be, yeah, you know, not even just sasquatch. There could be any number of
1: oh, unidentified
2: right. uh, species in there that we, you know we just don't well we don't, we don't see, have evidence
1: of. The folklorist would jump on that sentiment, and and uh, and and argue that that's the very essence of, of what this whole phenomenon is. That it, it's the wild man of the woods, after all, isn't it? It isn't the wild mm-hmm. man of the, of the plains or the big sky country, the wide open spaces. It's the wild man of the deep, dark, you know, the denizen of the deep, dark, mysterious forest that harbors all of these, these monstrous things. And so the, it's simply a manifestation of our, you know, a, a personification, rather, of our fear of that dark, unknown. And, and you have that reaction. It's just part of the, the, the uh, psyche. But, you know, the thing is, it's not universal. It doesn't show up in every culture. And it doesn't, certainly doesn't show up the same in every culture, as we pointed out. And yet, the differences have remarkable consistency with some of the paleontological and phylogenetic evolutionary scenarios that we're now starting to gain an understanding of that certainly was unknown to, you know, the peasant, the European peasant of, of two, three hundred years ago or earlier even. I mean, you go back to the earliest literary tradition in, in Western culture, the Gilgamesh epic, and you've got mm. the, the hero and the co-star. And who's the co-star? A wild man covered with hair, you know, that mm. float in the wind like the grain, you know, sheaves the grain in the, uh, in the field. That, that knew nothing of civilization, that frolicked with the animals. The animals didn't fear him, so forth, so forth. And it wasn't until he was sort of ceremoniously uh, seduced by the temple uh so the,
2: that, the, the, the epic of Gilgamesh is just, is that the, you know, another way of, you know, another culture's um, Noah's Ark? Is that, is that correct?
1: Well, there, there's a connection there to, yeah, stories that seem to be similar to Noah's Great. Ark, yeah. Survives the big okay. letter exactly. But okay, and, yeah. you know, In search, in search of eternal youth, you know, immortality. You know, the yeah. uh, quest for immortality. So there's all those themes, and so that's why you know, and that's the that's the kind of double-edged uh, uh, aspect of this phenomenon is that you know the literalists or the literaryists um, and uh, historians and folklorists and so forth point to this as an archetype of the human psyche. This the wild man, image, crops up over and over and over, and its hairiness is just a, is an artistic metaphor of, of wildness, uh, yeah, non non uncivilized. So, hmm. but see, and the thing is, it doesn't in my mind, it doesn't have to be either or. If if such a creature exists, and and our species has had interaction with these non human hominids of various. Strike for the entire duration of our existence. It, it stands to reason that our myths, our our stories, and uh, you know our culture would have elements of those those things. I mean, our 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 culture doesn't evolve in a vacuum. And there are other Aesop's fables. There are other characters. There are other animals. You look at, and this is one of the things about the Native American war where the Wild Man of the Woods features and wild woman of the woods features quite, quite prominently. And, um, you know, they, they have other mythical creatures, the thunderbird and so forth, but they all pretty much trace back to real animals. And of course, <laughs> and even the unembellished real animals are, are, uh, have personalities, have characteristics, uh, you know, the clever or the, the, uh, trickster coyote, you know, for example, or the, or the Raven, the Wise Raven, so forth, and all these different things. Um, so I don't think that's the problem. As when you get into this, well, it's got to be this or this. Well, no. I think if it's truly, if it's real, we should see the two of them, and they're they're going to be intimately interwoven with one another. And, and in reality, that's that's where I, uh, that's what I experienced. That's my impression and my interaction <clears throat> with Native Americans who. Uh, are, are familiar with their traditions you, you know now uh, there are fewer and fewer unfortunately that are just as with us but um, our cultural uh, underpinnings and roots and so forth um but where they are that seems to be the case i mean for them it's uh yes they they have a spiritual side but they're just as much part of the physical landscape as any other Form of wildlife be it bear or deer or elk or coyote right <laughs> so. and are, are the
0: sightings predominantly then or, or the ones that that you've investigated i suppose the word i would use are they kind of localized to the pacific northwest are they on the east coast i'm thinking maybe like um, maybe like maine or somewhere you know that far northeast coast of america going up into canada sort of similar uh, uh, climates and areas or how does that
1: how is that yeah. out? A, a rule of thumb uh there, there you know oftentimes on the television documentaries you'll see uh statements that suggest that every state of the union every state of the united states has had reports of bigfoot and that may be you know but there but there's an important distinction there may be reports mm. but uh there may not be sasquatch actually there because there are misidentifications and there are you know, delusional people and, you know, and, and as we alluded to, not all eyewitnesses are equally reliable or credible uh, based on their experience, their motivation, their interpretation, perception, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's some good evidence and, and um, it's an interesting story, but I won't go into the whole thing of the story. But basically, uh, a study was done and one of the outcomes of the study was a remarkable congruence between the distribution of black bear and Sasquatch report. And uh, so much so that that they, uh, it turns out it was meant sort of tongue in cheek, but it was taken as a serious conclusion. They suggested that that was the explanation for Sasquatch reports, they just misidentified black bear. Well, if you look at the black bear distribution, I mean, it's another large omnivore. Uh, so its habitat, its uh, niche requirements are going to have some similarities convergences with Sasquatch. And certainly there would be a range overlap. So if you look at Blackbird distribution across North America. Um, it's, it's remarkable that it does take in those habitats and those areas where I would give it more credible uh, with uh, eyewitness accounts and and corroboration with footprints and other trace evidence uh, come from so. The Pacific Northwest, you know, obviously historically the most well-known, although well, I shouldn't even say that. You go back to the more historic uh, newspaper accounts and so forth of uh, from uh, a young United States, 1800s and so on and, and back. And there are reports of wild men, of gorillas, you know, of different things like this that uh, could be representative of Sasquatch and, you know, if they are reliable accounts, uh, and I, you know, there's some obviously there's room for journalistic shenanigans, but I don't think you can write off every report like that. You know, when they appear on April first, then <laughs> uh, so that'll raises a question of what the motivation for publishing it was. Um, but so, in other words, Pacific Northwest, the Inner Mountain West, the Rocky Mountains, um, up across the uh, boreal forests of Canada. Down across the Great Lakes area, uh, mm-hmm. as you point out, the New England states, uh, Maine and Vermont, New Hampshire, and so forth, down the backside of the Appalachian Mountains, and then sort of through the deep south, hooking back up to Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and the Mississippi Basin there. It's actually quite hot and, and uh, uh, tepid, you know, in, 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 in many ways, it makes it very, very wet. So basically,
2: is, is, I'm sorry, is this is yeah. this where um, most of your you know your casts come mm-hmm. from? This this whole area exactly. Okay. My my so. collection
1: is is obviously predominantly from the Western United States because that's I mean just a, out of a necessity of uh, of limitations of time and so forth. I've just kind of focused there, um, and, and there are fewer casts, fewer credible casts, as you might expect. Given the population density, I mean, even though you've got bear populations, I mean, you look at, you know, uh, I, I gave a talk in Georgia, and I, I can't remember now the numbers for the individual states in the south. But, you know, we're talking most of those states along the Appalachia, there's maybe, oh, between uh, oh several hundred to a thousand uh, or so several thousand black bear in those, in those states. Um, you compare that to the state of Idaho, where there's 35,000 black bear. British Columbia has 115,000 black bear. So that says a lot about the human population and the consequent encroachment and degradation of the well, not necessarily degradation, but development of the habitat, reduction of the the forest land, and so forth, and uh, and therefore reduction of bear populations, but. You know, that's something I often do when, when someone mails me a report from back east um, and or they have a, a description of a sighting or they've found a scuff for a bed that they think might be Sasquatch. One of the first things I'll do is just look up on the, in the Internet and find the distribution map for Black Bear in their state. And, and if there's no Black Bear, then you have to question. Now, it's mm-hmm. very possible. This is always a caveat that I add to that, to that uh, uh, disclaimer, and that is, um, we we have some hints about the possible social organization, social structure of this species, and and I I think based on a number of different factors that it's most likely, you know, they're they're largely solitary. The males dominate an area of, of land, so like like an orangutan. Unlike uh, gorillas, gorillas dominate several females, and they move around as a unit. And, and their ranges actually kind of overlap a bit. But with orangutans, they dominate. They're quite solitary as well. They dominate the territory. That territory happens then to also be occupied, co-occupied by some females. And those females, usually when they come into the receptivity, which is pretty infrequent, they seek out the dominant male. And so he has exclusive access by rights to his claim to that territory. Anyway, so but so what that means is the male offspring, when they start to come into, the, into puberty, then the, the male is not going to tolerate them being around. It's going to drive them out. And they're going to be, until they get big and strong, they're going to have to be out on the fringes in the secondary, tertiary habitats. So when sometimes there might be a fairly... You know, reasonable or even credible, uh, corroborated that is, report of a Sasquatch in a kind of an out-of-the-way place. Well, it could very well be. It's, you know, one of these, what Dr. Krantz used to call rogue male, who's been driven out of his natal territory. And he has to strike off, you know, across the farmlands at night to get to um, a territory of his own. Or just bide his time until he's big enough to usurp or replace um, a retiring uh, dominant. I mean, so, that gives me a
0: terrifying thought of two eight-foot-tall hominids having like a rutting season, as we would call it over in Scotland. You like when the elks and they're clashing heads, just like a, you know, a, a, a picture like a, an epic wrestling-style grappling right. match. Between two, you know, like when the gorillas do, it and kind of you see a yeah. nature dog and they bang their chest and bull rush at each other in like yeah. displays of dominance and that, you know, moving on towards actual combat, going through All the, right. the, the gesture and impostering of, look, at, don't come at me, bro. I'm, I'm bigger and stronger than you. That's
1: right. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and uh, you brought to mind, I watched a documentary where uh, this they were following this one group and the dominant male was being challenged by another male. And, and, and he would call, repeatedly call. He'd start first thing in the morning. He wouldn't actually come and confront him face to face but just that calling was making everybody in the group anxious and nervous. Well, you know, we get reports of Sasquatch where the calls go on all night, these blood curdling screams. Well, maybe that's what it is. You know, it could well be because those loud calls serve a number of purposes. One would be to, um, to identify themselves, to space themselves. But another important factor would be to challenge a dominant male, And, uh, you know, so those kind of reports are that's the kind of behavior you would expect given the emerging model of social structure that is based on a lot of other bits and pieces of information which you know include uh, you know the solitary occurrence the repeat appearance of footprints that or eyewitness testimony of a particular you know color phase or something or uh and you know etc etc all these things kind of add up and uh, and by analogy we can see similar patterns in other great apes. That you know, it's interesting. You look at the great apes, and no two species have the same social structure. They've evolved mm. particularly distinct social structures in each of the great ape species. And so, you know, you you never say never because um, there's no reason that Sasquatch could show a totally unique uh, social structure that has only some superficial resemblances to you know as i've suggested to say an orangutan but uh, um yeah that's one thing i mean you know people i've had critics uh colleagues who have said well that they can't be this because the great apes don't do this or that well we're talking about the tip of a now extinct iceberg Um, the species of great apes that exist today are themselves relic almond They're threatened, endangered populations that are hanging on by the skin of their fingernails trying to survive in tropical refugia. Whereas, you know, 20 uh, 20 million years ago, 15, 20 million years ago, there was a a diversity of of great apes that uh, had uh, Tremendous range of body size up to Gigantopithecus that had a huge diversity of locomotor adaptations and dietary adaptations that inhabited flooded forests, that inhabited tropical forests, mountainsides, shrublands, uh, woodlands, even grasslands. So they, they were quite diverse. And so to say, well, this couldn't be, you know, is just... So so myopic and so naive. It, it, it's it's really frustrating sometimes. Almost like our our conversation about politics. How can people say or think things like that? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It does one seem- thing. Sorry, Ali. Uh, one or thing you- I, was, I, I was going to ask you: is, Do you find um, you know that the scientific community um, as a whole they kind of want to leave the past as is? And just keep moving forward. So to say, well, that's not possible. So we just won't think about it. Just move this way. Do you find this is something that they don't want to? They, they don't want and, to. suggest, yeah. They don't want. They don't want to accept maybe that they're wrong, and there it, is many other well, possibilities. Uh,
1: well, yes and no. I mean, certainly there there is there's there's an inertia, in, uh, an, an institutional inertia, and, um, and but but. Having said that, you know people make their careers by falsifying long-standing ideas. I mean that's the way you bring, get a name for yourself a lot of times if that's your goal in this business. And there are people that, that are motivated by that. Um, there are also young people who have not had the proper training in the history of the discipline and have. You know, like, so, uh, for example, I talked about this uh, sort of change, uh, as Kuhn would say, a paradigm shift in anthropology from what was called back. I mean, I came in with studying right on the on the end of the downward end uh, of it called the single species hypothesis, the notion that that the hominin niche was so unique, there could be only one species in it. You know, the the old evolutionary adage, no two species can occupy the same niche. Well, it was thought that bipedalism, braininess, and above all, culture, possession of culture was exclusive to a single hominin species. And so evolution took place with successive replacement or modification and extinction. And so there could, you know, it's kind of like Highlander. There can be only one. You know? And uh, that's fallen by the wayside. I mean, first, first they discovered that there were these robust and gracile australopithecines. They were trying to explain them as male and female to start with, but that fell apart. But then it was like, well, they're just they're just bipedal chimps, essentially. Their brains aren't very big. They don't really have culture, so they kicked the can down the path a little bit. Once Homo emerged, then there could be only one. Well, no sooner had they said that than Richard Leakey demonstrated in East Africa, Homo um, rudolfensis, Homo habilis, uh, Homo erectus, and robust australopithecines all living simultaneously at the same time, right there in East Africa. So, boom, kicked the bucket further down. Well, okay, but you know, once Homo sapiens emerged, you know, we're the last hominid standing. There are books by that title, "The Last Hominid Standing." Well, why? Now, now we know that there was Neanderthals are, are a separate species. I mean, no one can argue that they're not a separate species anymore. We've got Homo uh, Neanderthalensis. We have Homo Dinoa, as I mentioned. We've got Denisovans. We've got Heidelbergensis. We've got uh, The Hobbit. We've got Niladi, all coexisting. Well, not quite. Niladi, or, or, but anyway, but the point being, there was a, a bevy of others coexisting until almost the, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, present, almost the present. Um, so oh, I forgot my train of thought here. Why, why? Oh, paradigm shift. So, so I, I had, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to drive this message home and I had submitted an abstract for a presentation of a, of a, uh, a speech or podium, uh, presentation. Um, I was going to also include data, you know, and talk about the, um, where the evidence was pointing, but I wanted to provide this, this theoretical context so that it wasn't just you know, Bigfoot, and that's, they immediately thought, uh, supermarket tabloid, but that they saw that it's rooted, this conversation is rooted in the context of, uh, of patterns and process of human evolution. One of the reviewers said, there's been no paradigm shift. I'm not aware of any paradigm shift. I mean, that kind of thing. How can you say something? Like that? <laughs> again? I mean, it just reveals a naivete. This was a fairly young person I knew who this person was because th- this particular reviewer wasn't anonymous he was one of the organizers of the meetings and we because because my abstract was rejected I, and I protested and went all and I couldn't first of all I, I didn't get notification at the deadline when I was supposed to be notified so I could make my plans and they kept streaming me along streaming long before they finally um said it was denied it was rejected you know uh and uh and when I when I appealed there is no appeal process but when I when I requested an explanation uh, I couldn't get one and I so I resorted to the uh uh the executive committee and no one would answer me no one would reply until finally I guess they put the screws to the this one individual because then he wrote back and he wrote and he but he was the one who said there's no paradigm shift I'm not aware of any paradigm shift you know and he said you you know you're presenting information that you've d- discussed in the past at these meetings and I go no I'm not you know this is not this is all new evidence that I'm presenting <laughs> that's the kind of thing you run into so uh, yeah it's more <clears throat> it's it, there, there's a, a quite a spectrum i mean i could write a book just about the human side of science you know that i've experienced as a result of my involvement in this. And you get different reactions, different personalities. Um, uh, but um, I, someone actually said to me, uh, th- indirectly through the editor, again, we were invited, the two of us, uh, one of my coworkers and I were invited to write a review paper of the kind of the, the state of, the, of knowledge what was the evidence for Sasquatch and the existence of Sasquatch or other relic hominoids? And so we did, I I thought it was a really good paper. And it was just, you know, it was a a very good summary. And uh, the editor was quite delighted with it, but it got squashed by the scientific advisory board. This was the California Academy of Sciences. And they wanted the publication of the paper for their, um, their, sort of a semi-technical uh, magazine, uh, California Wild, it was called at the time. And uh, when I pressed, again, I pressed. I mean, I don't just roll over for these things. Um, the principal objector uh, antagonist said, they can't exist, therefore they don't exist, and it doesn't matter what evidence they think they have. You know, I, I thought of having that engraved on a placard or something to hang up yeah, somewhere yeah. to show my students what not to say if you're a scientist. Well, Yeah, it sounds anti-science.
2: Yes. Yeah, this, this sounds completely like a going against the, your own grain. It seems crazy. But,
1: yeah, no, I know. It's just, it was unbelievable. I could, and I said, I said to him, well, you're the editor. Don't you have final call? He goes, well, you know, in theory, yes, but I can't go against the recommendation of my scientific advisory board. They'd stop being my scientific advisory board. So it didn't get published. But that person, uh, yeah, that person holds a, a uh, has a special place in, my, <laughs> in yeah. my heart. The list of people to serve up crow at the opportunity ever.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you, do you think then that they're saying that just off the back of that statement there, Jeff, you're saying, you know what, it, it can't exist, so it doesn't exist, therefore it can't exist. That almost self-self, um, you know, confirming itself. But do you think maybe like a, a, a DNA or a genome from a piece of evidence would would be the holy grail that would finally turn everyone around?
1: Well, maybe. there There is There's no precedent for recognising a a, a a novel species on the basis of DNA alone, you know, okay. DNA has been used to has been used to um, differentiate, say, subspecies or sibling species or whatever. But you know, in those cases, the bones or the skins exist in the museums already, and they're just kind of refining the taxonomy. But there's a there is a growing literature that uh, in, in the professional literature that um, discusses or debates the um, you know, sh- should we be to a, ethically, as ethically as a science, be to the point where in the case of rare and endangered species, where the, the lethal harvesting of a type specimen could have unknown impact on that, excuse me, on that population, especially if you were talking about large hominoids, um, should we rely, be able to rely to establish a new species on the basis of a type specimen i'm mean, sorry on the, a dna a voucher dna a genome as you mentioned and, um, and maybe sasquatch will be the test case for that you know there's a couple of cases i think where um i don't, I don't know how if if, it, if they have been formally recognized or just kind of put in limbo but you know there have been some sea mammals for example some pinnipeds that have been identified on the basis of photographs or sketches of due to sightings at sea You know, it's, uh, it's, you know, some would argue, well, yes, but there are others, similar species. It's not like you're, you're suggesting the unicorn exists and that, but that's the thing. The advance of, of paleoanthropology over the past quarter century has made it such that the notion of relic hominoids isn't like talking about unicorns. I mean, it, it's, it, it. As some have, some of my colleagues have, have acknowledged, we should expect there to be such things out there, yeah. um, shouldn't absolutely. we? You no, know, absolutely. It's, it's,
0: funny it's funny that you funny. mentioned unicorns as well. Talking to two Scottish guys, because you might be aware that the national animal of Scotland is the unicorn. Right. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, see, and, and one time, I, I, I one time, I, uh, you know, uh, would show this slide in one of my talks, and and it was from an old medieval bestiary and i and it has some really rather fanciful uh creatures like dragons and unicorns and, and i pointed out how some of these have been explained now and recognized as being just rather embellished representations of animals like you know a crocodile a crocodile a saltwater crocodile and and you know but then there's others that still have been relegated to mythology like the unicorn one of my colleagues who who's who's been one of my best uh sounding boards uh, on this kind of topic because he shares many similar interests but he comes up to me after he says you know jeff i think you you misstepped there he said go back and read the original descriptions of unicorns they've got thick skin thick plated skin they've got big round feet their horn is not on the middle of their forehead but it's on the end of their nose their descriptions of rhinoceros yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. and so
1: of course you know the medieval unicorn that's captured by the virgin the fair maiden yeah. has a much different appearance this kind of you know gracile uh, uh cult or goat cross with the goatee and the horn you know it's a very different uh, image than a lumbering uh yeah, <laughs> rhinoceros yeah. but you just but who knows just, You've just you just ruined you
2: just ruined the national animal Scotland. No, next, no. next you'll be telling us Nessie's not real. Jesus, a unicorn
1: of steroids, you know? <laughs> yeah, the, the man, the, man unicorn. the one unicorn that could work yeah. for Bill. and not
2: drink. <laughs> <animal. laughs>
1: uh, yes. of Scotland's great animals. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's um. I tell you, I've got there's so many things there's so many things now clicking yeah. in my head. I've, I've, there's far too much information in my head now, Jeff. Um, well, I'm surprised you
1: haven't asked me about the Gray Man yet.
2: Well, the
1: Gray Man, I don't, uh, you know, I don't. Uh, unfortunately, don't profess to know a lot about that and the traditions. And and I, it's interesting though that uh, Bigfoot in Britain is all the rage now, and there have been books even written about all the sightings. You know, but as you point out, there's precious little forest left on the continent there on the island rather the isles and uh you know Mm -hmm. an animal like I don't know if I've never actually looked to see if there is a black bear a wild black bear population uh, in Great Britain I don't believe (laughs) there is Mm
0: -hmm. if if you again go with it you're probably talking the the estimate around 50,000 years ago the bears last kind of like sort of maybe the tail end of one of the the
2: only thing the yeah. only thing—the only thing that there's been sightings of is a big cat—that's that's pretty right. much about it. That's that's about it. That's um, another... There yeah. is—I mean, there is areas. I mean, Scotland's a small country, but you know, I've I've covered quite a lot of the country. There yeah. is areas in the Highlands, you know, in the Glens, and the, and the you know, there's nothing there. You know, oh. it's, it's just wasteland, and it, you know it, it, almost impossible to survive there. So, but, you know, maybe, maybe, there is, maybe there is in there. We, we never know. But um, it's, it's not really big enough a country, you know, if it's compared to America. First, it's, it's, it's tiny.
0: I'm admiring as well, behind you, Jeff, the, the still from the famous Patterson
1: film. Oh, yeah, uh-huh.
0: That is <laughs> where that's from, isn't
1: it? It is, indeed. Yeah. Indeed it is, yeah. yeah probably the still most still stands, stands as one of the most uh, uh, significant pieces of evidence. And by far the most compelling photographic evidence. Um, but I tell you, you know, there was a time early on in my involvement in this subject when I was a little bit reticent to to, to uh, direct too much attention or place too much significance on that one piece of evidence. Um, but I tell you, but now, uh, as, as my own understanding of uh, anatomy and, and kinematics and so forth is has matured, and, and uh, as I've come to know uh, the surviving participant, Bob Gimlin personally, and uh, and uh, worked with other investigators as well, examining other aspects of the of the film itself and um, the nature of the images on the film, in addition to the the subject. Uh, I'm as convinced as I can be, short of having stood there on the sandbar on that fateful day, but. You know, if if I only had the footprints, the images of the footprints and the casts that were made, I would be absolutely convinced that they are 100% authentic. So um, that has always been a bit of a touchstone to go back
0: I think even the, the story you told right at the start of this podcast around, you know, that that 30 or 40, I think you said, footprints in the cast you took that day and the fact that there was skin ridges and pressure changes and even just listening to that without having seen them, I don't know about you, Chris, but even I was mm-hmm.
2: like...
0: It it just seems like so, so almost counterintuitive that someone would go to that degree of trying to
1: hoax it. Uh, right. should, can only be...
2: One and thing that's all I, the... Um...
1: And some have. I mean, there was, there back in the day, you know, uh, Ray Wallace did have carved wooden feet that he stomped out some footprints with, and Ray Pickens. And more recently, there's some of these uh, sort of, uh, you know, internet trolls, skeptics that have uh, attempted to uh, plant evidence. And they were all quickly uh, uncovered. Um, and, uh, you know, there were telltale signs i don't know if you saw <laughs> there was a, a documentary um by uh les stroud survivor man oh, yeah. yeah. survivor man bigfoot he came to my lab for one of the episodes well he had surreptitiously hired a, a hollywood makeup artist a makeup engineer who um, had created a, a false foot that les had uh, experimented in the field with to see what it would what would be involved? What would be involved to fabricate the prosthetic? And then could he make convincing footprints in the field? Well, he made some plaster casts from those and he brought them to my lab and, and uh, presented them as ostensibly the real thing and uh, asked me what I thought about them. And you know, just purely by coincidence, I had um, a cast sitting there off to the side, one particular one that's extremely clear footprint from uh, up from washington state i said well you know it's interesting there's actually some real convergent similarities in the shape of the toes and the and the, the confirmation of the foot here to this and i reached across i pulled this other track and i laid it down beside it you know and, and i had real suspicions about these to begin with but i i, mean, I was trying to be diplomatic <laughs> and uh <laughs> so i was kind of uh qualifying. Eventually, I just kind of said, well, you know, I'd have to take some time and, and uh, examine these further before making the decision. He looked at me, had this little wry smile come across his face. And, and in fact, he then he acknowledged that they were hoaxed. And they were hoaxed based on the, the engineer had used this cast that I had laid down beside it as the very model from which he uh, uh, patterns. Sneaky. So... You know, it was kind of uh uh it was an interesting exercise, interesting demonstration. It could have gone poorly, I guess, but I mean I'm not the I'm not uh by any means uh foolproof on this kind of thing, but nor do I claim to be, but but in this case if the uh uh the similarity and that's happened in the past where people have presented things to me and I go, Well, hmm, where did you get this copy of? And I opened up a drawer and pull out a cast that I'm <laughs> familiar with, and it's a copy of Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And I go, oh, yes, you do. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So
1: she does. She sold this to you,
2: man. One of the things that's, um, you know, when, you know, <clears throat> coming into these things, Jeff, you, you know, you have to, you, if you want, I watch a lot of, uh, you know, videos like this, you know, you know, Bigfoot and, you know, UFO videos and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I've watched, I uh, you you know Bigfoot videos, UFO videos, and you know you'll 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 listen to somebody talking for five minutes, and you'll go, this person is crazy, absolutely crazy. So what Ali was saying was, you know when you when you're talking about these first, you know the first fifteen minutes when you're talking about these footprints, and just the detail that you can go into about you know the difference in pressure, and you go, oh, okay, this makes sense. <laughs> you know, I've, yeah. I've you know I've listened to countless uh, you know UFO encounter videos. And a lot of them, you go, this person is out of their mind. But there is ones, you know, um, you know Betty and Hill, you know, that famous um, UFO, UFO incident from, like, the 50s. Well, you listen to that and you go, hmm. This, yeah. this yeah. is interesting. They don't seem like... They seem like this has terrified them. And, you know, you could just tell, as you're saying, you know, in terms of sometimes eyewitness testimonies, just by talking to somebody, you go, yeah, this seems... You know, short of me seeing a Bigfoot, it seems.
1: uh, You know. And you touch on a a really good point too, and 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 it's not appreciated by by all, especially by those who have just a very superficial exposure to the subject matter. You know, through a a a tabloid magazine or through a you know an internet uh, webpage or something. But but it does make sense. That's the point. Is that it's not like this incongruous paranormal phenomenon that just kind of drops out and, and runs counter to everything we understand in nature. Instead, what I find is that it, as I said, there is a context there. there it makes sense ecologically. It makes sense paleontologically, evolutionarily, you know, there, and biomechanically, functionally. You know, these aren't just feet uh, human feet facsimiles that are just blown up, stretched out. They are feet that are distinct from those of humans in the very ways that a biomechanist would appreciate and understand, if they have the wherewithal to do that. And so you've got this very coherent and consistent. And and when it comes to the Patterson Gimlin film, is a great example. You know that you always have to view that in the context. Of when it was filmed in 1967, um, there was a gentleman, uh, a, a primatologist by the name of John Napier, who uh, viewed the film. He was one of the first to view the film. And uh, in one of his published comments, well, he wrote a book. He was impressed. He, he, he wasn't ready to, uh, to vindicate or authenticate, rather, validate the film. Um, uh, and he, he spoke very skeptically of it. But he said he couldn't put his finger really on any one thing, except he said when he looks at it from the waist up, it looks virtually like an egg. It looks like a big gorilla. But from the waist down, it, it looks like a human, human proportions. And he said, it's, I, I cannot conceive of such a hybrid of structure existing in nature. One or the other has to be false. Ergo, the whole thing is false. You know, it's a hoax. Well, he but he still was impressed enough by the whole prospect of Bigfoot Sasquatch that he uh, spent the next five years writing a book, which was published in in the um, early 70s. Well, interestingly, and that's where that statement appeared. That's where that uh, in print about this hybrid. Waist up, it looks like an ape. Waist down, it looks like a human. Well, shortly thereafter, I mean, literally within the next few years. Don Johansson is all over the papers with his discoveries of Lucy. And uh, Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, um, provided much more complete postcranial skeletal, associated postcranial skeletal material of these aust- bipedal Australopithecines. And, um, and it isn't an interesting. In the popular press, they were described as from the waist up, looking like a chimpanzee, but from the waist down, looking like a human. Isn't it interesting how evolution has combined in a mosaic fashion these unexpected characteristics? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, wait a minute. Five years ago, that was the linchpin that, that hooked or hung up Napier accepting the Patterson-Gimlin film. And yet, it anticipated the unusual, inconceivable combination of traits that we now no uh, characterized these early bipedal australopithecines. You know, and, and, I, and when I, I have a presentation that I developed at the anniversary of the film, 50th anniversary. Uh, and the theme of it basically is that, you know, we're looking at the film now with 50, with 2020, 20, 50 year hindsight. Yeah. yeah. And the film actually anticipates, in some cases by decades, aspects of early hominin evolution that we had no clue about in 1967. And certainly Roger Patterson, the uh, 'er ne'er-do-well rodeo rider who couldn't hold the job very long, who had his character attacked right and left, how would he have orchestrated, masterminded a hoax that wasn't just an off-the-shelf gorilla costume, but was this remarkable uh, representation of what we now understand early hominins to look like.
2: Yeah. No, that is interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember I remember seeing the video on um over here in the UK when I was I must have been certainly pre-teen anyway, you know, maybe primary school age. Um and it was on Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, yes, the great yes. TV show. And I remember seeing the footage and me and my dad sitting talking about it. And my dad saying, It can't be real, it can't be real, that doesn't exist. But yeah, as you say, the more and more you look into it, particularly some of the, yourself with such a background in anatomy, particularly, right? Um, it just seems to become, you know, more and more
1: probable. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. I I have a clip that was uh, it was an is an exceptional version of the film where one of the problems was, you know, people have always said, oh, it's so blurry, so you know, jiggly and, and bouncy and so forth. Well, it's it's not really blurry. It, there is some motion blur because, in fact, the film speed had gotten turned down. It was at somewhere between 16 and 18 frames per second instead of 22, which is your, your preferable uh, frame rate for broadcast quality. But um, but it, it had a you know a, a, an infinite focus lens, so anything from two feet to infinity should be in focus. So it's just that people don't realize that that what they see on TV is being blown up from a 16 millimeter film frame, a, a, a little figure that's only about 1.8 millimeters tall. And so the grain, they know people today don't even know what grain is. So the pixels, <laughs> <laughs> the pixels uh, of the, you know, it becomes pixelated or grainy as you increase the, the, uh, yeah. it. well, um, it was thought that the, um, the, uh, there was evidence of of uh, kind of a, a hazy, uh, out of a blur, a little bit of a blur around the figure on the objects, and and what that was, the um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought for a minute. The the lens was an inexpensive lens that wasn't corrected for chromatic aberration, meaning when the light passes through this cheaper lens, the refraction of the different wavelengths is um varied so some mm. of the colors are in sharp focus but the others are slightly out of focus so what uh, what they did is they took the a good clean copy. they're not the original but a, one of the clean copies, and they um uh my photomicrographed it through a microscope you know to enlarge it to the limits of the grain and then they um once they had the, and, and photographed it digitally so once it was now digitized it could be entered into a computer and there are programs that can split the color channels, the color information, which is, in effect, you know, correcting for that aberration. And what they found was that the red channel was the sharpest in focus. The blue and the and the yellow were a little hazy. And when you subtracted that information away, isolated the red channel. Over here, we've got what's called the uh, have Claritin is a is a. Uh, Allergy medicine. Yeah, yeah, here, Yeah, Claritin Clear, and it, and they peel this fuzzy film off the screen, effectively, virtually. Well, it has that same effect. You peel off this haze, and the image is sharper than you've ever seen it. It mm-hmm. loses some color information, but the clarity of the image is enhanced. And then and then those individual frames were uh, strung together, and and in a GIF, they were stabilized. And play the proper film speed. It's really amazing to watch because you can see, you know, you can see uh, boundaries and details that are to they're fogged over in the original. And I'll show this to my anatomy students after they've, you know, completed the course sometimes just on our review day for fun and to get them to review surface anatomy and muscle masses based on surface anatomy. And you can start at the top and work your way down, and they can identify the trapezius and the deltoids, the the lateral and long heads of the triceps. You can see the latissimus. You can see the shoulder blade sliding underneath the skin. You can see the erector spinae down paralleling the vertebral column and the great big gluteus maximus, you know, up really high on very high flaring ilia that are on a non-human pelvis. You can see the mass of the quadriceps, you can see the quadriceps or the uh, rectus femoris shorten and bunch up. I mean, the, there's a line where that defines the uh, boundary between the gluteus maximus and the and the hamstrings. I mean, it's just you work your way down, you can see the heads of the quad of uh, the gastroc and you can see the and not only see these things, but you can see them contract at the appropriate times and uh, in the in the step. So it's not like somebody has, uh, you know, sculpted foam rubber musculature yeah. uh, underneath the suit oh but wait there wasn't foam rubber to be had in 1967 um minor detail there you know um yeah. but you know you get these movements you can see the the little fold of, of the armpit of the pectoralis major you can see the muscle with the breast tissue riding down lower and there's this one one step where, where obviously you know sometimes when you you misjudge the height of a of a section of the sidewalk and it's about an inch lower than you expect and come down and it boom, jars you. You can see the shock wave go up through her leg muscles all the way to her chest and her breast tissue go and rise and fall with the shockwave. And I mean, it's just, it's, you know, we you sit here, mem- my students, we memorize. And it takes all of uh, of about uh, 15 seconds for this to play. But 20 minutes later, we're still watching it. <laughs> Looking at all the details as yeah. you work down. You know, no, no suit uh survives under that kind of scrutiny. No. And uh, you were using hmm.
0: you were using you were using she, so are you hundred percent certain it's a female there on the parts oh, oh, yeah.
1: cl- and they're they clearly are breasts and given her size, I mean she's somewhere between six and uh, six and a half and seven feet in height. Uh, and there's there's you know, arguments can be made either direction and depending on the margin of error, the measurements and so forth. I mean one of the, the most straightforward ways to measure obviously would be to take the, the foot which we have footprints of which was 14 and a half to 15 inches. Problem is where the foot is most vertical would be get the most precise measurement. It's the most it's reflecting light and it overexposes a little which makes a bit of a halo which makes it more problematic to get a precise measurement. So if your measurement is off by 10%, well, 10% of 14 inches, 15 inches, that's an inch and a half. So if you use that as your scale, how many feet can you stack on top to get her height? Well, you've got an inch and a half times what, five. So yeah. you can be off by five inches either way. Well, well, tend- tendency to overestimate the height, I guess, but they're but, so, you know, six and a half to seven feet. But, uh, you know, she's got the, uh, the mammary glands that uh, appear to be consistent. Now there's some that have argued, uh, this kind of shows some of the silliness that comes to the surface, even from professionals. Um, one, the breasts obviously drew attention. And uh, when some of the experts viewed it, one of the criticisms was primates don't have hair on their breasts and uh i beg to differ (laughs) i mean even if you have no nothing but human experience uh you know if you have goose flesh what causes goose flesh yeah the contraction of the erector pili muscle which is attached to the follicle of a hair now you look at any female in a in chilly weather where, where you've got a view and there's gonna be goosebumps all the way across her breasts, and that means she's got fine hair follicles all the way across her breast. I mean, it's the most ridiculous comment to be made. But but it was also that on top of that, it says, Well, yes, yeah, she has breasts, but she walks like a man. You know, it must be a man in a Well, wait a minute. Why do human females walk the way they do? Because they have a wider pelvis, moves the hip joints apart in order to provide a larger birth canal, right? Because humans have Human babies have big brains at birth. Well, do gorillas have big brains at birth? Do chimpanzees have big? Sasquatch has a a head that's proportionate, say, to a gorilla, to its body mass. Uh, We would expect its neonate to have a head that's on par with a gorilla or something like that. Uh, And so it doesn't have that obstetric constraint. And so its pelvis is going to be more like a male pelvis of its own species. And it's going to walk like a male of its own species. I mean, see, this is the kind of shallow thinking, the knee-jerk reaction that exposes the, the, you know, quite quite unfortunate, the, the lack of professionalism, the naivete of some of these experts at the time who pontificated about what can and cannot exist and then try to rationalize it by throwing out these really silly, silly statements about it, Um, and yet they get repeated over and over again in the in the books and literature and the skeptical writings, you know, they always hark back to the, you know, well scientists said this and this, they didn't accept it because of this and this.
0: Yeah, I suppose, you know, I suppose we've talked about science, you know, searching ideally for the truth and fact, but I suppose science in some areas, has has evolved. You know, if you go back to you know Copernicus and Galileo and the acceptance of moving on and on. But I suppose there are some entrenched. And, and as you've said as well, Jeff, some people have made their career on being the expert in this, and then if something changes, they they have to admit, well, my whole career of being an expert
2: has actually been false. It, I mean, yeah. Egypt, Egypt, Egypt is a perfect example of this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I've made a career on it, and it's it's now i mean not true <laughs> you right. know the, the, the age of the sphinx and the age of the pyramid you
1: know oh yeah and I, I don't want to come across to your viewers as being anti-science in any way or to or to be No, no, no i don't think you do i think
0: you come across as a scientist
1: yes yeah. but but there but it, it must be recognized that scientists you know are people and certainly i have uh i'm certain uh i'm certainly uh, probably victim i shouldn't say certainly i'm likely victim of of Or blind to preconceptions or misinterpretations or or this that or the other or um, but there's a lot of evidence that uh, that bolsters you know uh, one of the one of the blessings I've enjoyed the benefits I've enjoyed for example is the the uh, cover of my book boasts an endorsement by no less than Jane Goodall even uh, even more impactful, in, in some ways or on a different different level, maybe different. Uh, uh, the foreword is written by George Schaller, one of the preeminent naturalists of our century, and our generation or something. And um, you know when when people just say ridiculous, and I should point out, both neither of those endorsements endorses the existence of Sasquatch. They endorse this study of the question of the existence of Sasquatch as being mm. territorious and so forth. And that, that's all I asked uh, or all I expected of them. Um, I mean, in the book, I do take a position Say, you know, the, the, the weight of the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence in my mind is convincing. I am convinced. I don't believe I'm convinced. Um, but, you know, I, I had a, a journalist sitting across the, the, the desk from me and, and he wanted me to give him names of Skeptics on campus people who are critical of what I have said and I said why I mean why? (laughs) First there's no one on campus really that's qualified to comment or to or to critique My pronouncements in my discipline. I mean, we we just don't have the depth of faculty here for that You'd have to go somewhere to another institution or something. I said, but why would I give you that? I said why would and then you you put the the armchair comments of some you know skeptic some self-professed skeptic on par with my comments that are the result of years and years of research not to mention training and education uh, behind that research and of course they found them but I, I and this this one uh, this one journalist he he had already talked to people just you know the Joe on the street uh, basically a student crossing campus or another member of my department. and He said, you know, they've said some really nasty things about you. Um, in fact, you're considered by a lot of people to be a joke. What, what's your response to that? And I turned behind, reached from the shelf and took down my book. And I said, well, who's, whose name is n- under that pronouncement right there on the cover? And it was Jane Goodall. And I opened it up and George Shaw. I said, you know who these people are, right? And you know, I had to explain didn't know that they were especially george Schaller. the average person doesn't have the name recognition that jane goodall does and then i opened up the cover inside cover and there's a whole page and a half of endorsements from uh state veterinarians from anthropologists from wildlife biologists from game wardens from from folklorists and so forth and i said and you talk to who <laughs> and you know so it's it's been uh, been a bit of a of a not a, not a shield, but a bit of a uh, well. In, in some ways, it has. It certainly has deflected. When you have people of that stature, that caliber, that thoughtfulness, those credentials, um, and uh, you put those up against, you know, someone who's shooting from the hip, who has an opinion <clears throat> on everything. We have one of we had one of those on campus who uh, got lots of. Uh, of reinforcement uh, he had a, a, a local a column in our local paper as well okay. so he had an opinion on everything and uh, uh he was in the physics department Do you know what they say about opinions right,
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So one of the things um you know you were talking about your book there jeff so one of the things i was going to ask um is there somewhere that i could buy
1: a book and get you to sign one you certainly certainly I have to warn you though, the uh, postage overseas is horrendous.
2: Yeah. Uh, It's not so bad
1: for a book, but I I just won't even try. Like, I I sometimes sell replicas of casts, even to get it across the Canadian border. The uh, postage ends up being many, many times what the cast is uh, cost and certainly what it's worth. But but for books, it's not such a big deal. But certainly, I, we can arrange that. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: that'd be that a really nice thing to have. I think.
1: Yeah,
2: be a pleasure. quite a cool thing to have. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think we've done. Is that about two hours, Ali? It's right? going towards two hours. Yeah, I think we've. Okay. Uh, My head it's been now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you get you get me started, and it's hard to get me to stop. It, but no, uh, no, it
2: was it, it was fantastic. It, it was a really good. Certainly
1: one. cut off at two hours for sure.
0: Uh, yeah no we appreciate yeah. your time thank you just if on just as we're kind of winding it down we always just asked if people are looking for you on social media or looking to get in touch with you where's the best place to to do it Jeff
1: well, well I do it. have a, I do have I don't have a web page per se but I, I have a Facebook page it's under yeah. Don my full name Don Jeffrey Meldrum um, and then um, uh, but otherwise I, I would re- recommend uh, my book is a good starting place because while it, there is some uh, plenty of meat on the bones, I do think it's accessible. Uh, you know, the chapter on footprints, I kind of pulled the stops because that was my forte and I wanted to really okay. come down uh, convincingly and heavily on, on that data. Um, but, uh, and I've also written um, a couple of field guides, which also make good kind of primers. So, one is a Sasquatch field guide. Um, These are available on Amazon or through a company called Paradise K, Paradise K, C-A-Y, which is a little little company down in uh, Arcata, California. The second of those two is uh, a field guide to relic hominoids around the world. So it addresses that question of multiple um, types, uh, sort of rehearses Sanderson's. It's sort of a shrunken head of the next book I'm working on. Which will be interesting when it when it eventually gets published, because it'll have been about 50 plus years since Sanderson's book, and and in spite of all the developments and all the interesting things and all the research, new research and uh, information that the internet has afforded and so forth, we pretty much re-emphasized uh, Sanderson's original conclusions. I mean, I see a, a minimum of four types. And they they you know mesh align with his categories, and and they're reinforced as well by good footprint evidence that seems to uh, reiterate those distinctions that which he drew in the absence of good footprint evidence for some, or at least not as extensive evidence for some of the forms that he was interested in. Uh, and then plus, when you consider, like I said, that. Advances that have been made in paleoanthropology in the last 50 years. I mean, it's amazing uh, that were unknown to Sanderson at that time. Um, it just creates a broader, deeper context for all of this. See, that was the thing. Again, it, it, when, when he published his book in 61, that was right at the peak of the single species hypothesis, the advocation for that idea. And so when you get a hold of the very few reviews that were written of his book, it reflects that. I mean, it, it, the, he just simply wasn't taken seriously because here, here's the, the title, you know, Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life. The subtitle was Subhuman Species on Five Continents. Well, according to the, the party line, the consensus of the time, there were no other subhuman species out there. So this was just pure fiction in their mind. It just absolutely no chance of, of accommodating the proposition. And so it was treated as such. And uh, boy, now it's a very different backdrop against which to, to consider this question. And so it'll be interesting. But it's hard to find the time to get the darn project done. So. <laughs> I took a shortcut, wrote the abstract and published it as this second field guide. So it gives the reader little information about the notion of that paradigm shift, you know, uh, the current uh, understanding of some of the diversity and contemporaneity of species and recent persistence of species. And then looks at some of the folklore and so forth, as well as the footprint evidence and other anecdotal evidence for each of these forms around the globe and compares and contrasts them because you know, people are always asking me what about the yeti sasquatch and the yeti the same thing well no they're not they're very very different and uh very different uh, origins and very different anatomies and behaviors described or attributed to them so sorry i'll stop there <laughs>
2: <laughs> what's um what what, what the, the, the coolest thing is um is when you speak to somebody who's so clearly passionate you know about what they're talking about that's, that's a nice thing to see when somebody's really you know really really into it and, and they've spent a life um gathering data and studying it it's, it's quite a nice thing to see it's quite a cool thing to see so yeah, yeah
0: i'm sure your students love your lectures like genuinely that's like like i can imagine you like in front of the lecture of students just just
1: ruling it <laughs> <laughs> well i i strive for that i don't always Reach that goal, <laughs> um, you know. Anatomy, anatomy can be a, a, a rather uh, some perceive it as being a rather tedious. Um, it's like learning a vocabulary list, you yeah. know, for a foreign language. Um, but but when you when you look at the human strategy from uh, an evolutionary and uh, comparative perspective, then you start to really appreciate. Not only the marvels, but some of the oddities and peculiarities of human anatomy and our organization and uh, And it becomes really fun um, It's if, if I can light that fire under a student. It's to mm. their benefit I think But there are yeah. a lot of very pragmatic What do I need to know to get through the boards exams? <laughs> yeah. yeah OTPTs are very applied very clinically minded that that's yeah.
2: Yeah I think I think um, I could sort
1: of relate to that so I, I um
2: you know at high school I was uh, fascinated with history I loved history but never I, I did enough to you know get a, you know get a grade and, and um get a qualification um from high school but I never did anything with it but now I you know I always I had a very good history teacher at, um at school and uh, you know he made the the actual learning of you know, because it was it was sort of World War Two, you know, some stuff about you know Roman Britain, general stuff, but it made it made history so fun uh, in terms of the learning side of it. It made me, all, even now, you know, I still look back to you know Egypt and you know yeah, Gobe- yeah. Gobekli Tepe and stuff. Now and it's fa- you know dinosaurs is fascinating, and it, it, sure. it all comes from from that point. So having yeah. a good teacher is, is 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 um you know you're very lucky if you find somebody like you who's clearly. Um, you know, loves the subject, so yeah, it's nice.
1: Well, okay.
0: cool. good. Well, thank you very much for your time, Jeff. This has been yeah. an absolute outstanding. We've just hit the two-hour mark, so an absolute Ooh. outstanding. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know me and Chris have been excited about this for the last couple of weeks of we been sent up in the background, so I appreciate number one, you, you getting back to me when I reached out a couple of weeks ago. Sure. Number two, I appreciate even more that you've taken two hours of your day to sit and talk to two Scottish guys about Sasquatch That's the the, the 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 joys of the internet um sometimes amazes me
1: <laughs> absolutely my pleasure from a fellow Scotsman by the way oh Mel- yeah. Yeah, look on look in the uh, eastern aberdeen uh, shire and uh, you'll find old meldrumton tune.
2: Uh, that's right you know what yep.
1: that's on the
2: i have stayed in old meldrumton that is on the Whiskey trail Ah, So, yeah, I did. In fact, on this blanket, this is a blanket (laughs) of, uh, you know, marathon T-shirts and stuff like this. In fact, this T-shirt, this one here. um, Yeah, we there's a marathon, you know, followed the whiskey trail and you got, you know, a bottle of a miniature of whiskey from each distillery. Um, and that's where that was from. That was where they started. Oh, it was yeah. exactly there. So there you go. What a small world. It is. <laughs> oh, thanks very much.
0: I'll stop the recording, but thank you so much, Professor uh, Jeffrey Meldrum. Thank you again.
1: Thank you. You're quite welcome. Thank you.